0: Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously, then we are the natural selection. On today's show, there could be a a macaw in Peru, which if we found it and put some effort in, could start doing quadratic equations. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Yeah. You couldn't be a serial killer if your way of disposing was a big snake. Normally, there's an element of something gets the animal riled up. This is just like it's bludgeoning just, uh, a marshmallow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Have you heard the crows are going to take all our jobs news? Uh, no. There's been a lot in the news lately, though, uh, so... Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Have you seen that in news coming from a city in Sweden that I'm not even going to try and pronounce... Um, yeah, but you are, though. The, oh, I know we've got Swedish listeners. <laughs> so, uh, so, so de tar, talgi. I've butchered that. Yes, you I have. i butchered it completely. I, I don't know what it's meant to be, but I know it's so not that. Talgi. Anyway. Okay. Anyway, news from there is that they're using crows to tackle their litter problem. A company called Corvid Cleaning is behind the idea of training wild birds to collect rubbish, particularly cigarette butts, in return for food rewards. The Keep Sweden Tidy Foundation says that more than a billion cigarette butts, which is an insane number, Mm. are left on Sweden's streets each year, representing 62% of all litter. And this city that we're talking about spends 20 million Swedish krona, 1.6 million pounds on street cleaning. So along comes Christian Gunther Hansen, founder of Covid Cleaning, who reckons his method could save at least 75% of costs involved with picking up cigarette butts in the city by using these crows. So, how does this work? So this is using wild birds, it's not a captive project, and the plan is to train the crows to recognise that they can use special vending machines to put in the cigarette butts And it rewards them with a nice tasty snack or food reward. And because the crows are very social, very clever, they would learn from the crows that pick it up first. And the plan is that you could train an entire population of wild crows living in a city to associate cigarette butts with these little vending machines that they fly over. They drop them in and a little food reward comes out. And that's the plan. Although there is some scepticism right. on whether this might work or not. yeah, There's no doubt we've... I mean, we've spoken about crows many times on this podcast. Oh, yeah. They appear quite a lot when we're doing our hypotheticals. If ever we're talking about intelligence in animals, crows often come up. So there's no doubt that something like this or ways of harnessing COVID intelligence is an unexplored area that could have some pretty cool benefits for us. There was a girl in uh, America somewhere... Who developed this relationship with the crows that were living in her garden and they just kept bringing her gifts. And she's got like a whole pile of stuff that the crows just kept bringing her, dropping in her garden because she would feed them. So the crows just kept bringing her all this stuff. So there's definitely a lot going on with crows Uh, that we could harness. Did they bring her anything good? Uh, no. It's like a Cigarette butts from gi- Sweden. A good gift to a crow is probably not the same as, you know, they're not turning up with iPads and things no, like I, that. No, I, I, I appreciate it. But it's shiny it. things. I wondered if it was jewellery, basically. Uh, I don't know if there was any jewellery, but it is small shiny things. Right, which is so, basically jewellery. If yeah. <laughs> I was to explain jewellery to someone who didn't know what it was, small shiny things would feature highly in my list of words. Yeah, but I wanted to give you a few examples of The intelligence of Corvids and then go a little bit into sort of bird intelligence in general. Okay. As you know, I'm a fan of the bird. (laughs) Quite. Um, So I want to talk about a few uh, cool examples of bird intelligence that we've got. Right. So is now the point where we question the cigarette plan? (laughs) Oh, yes. So we're moving away from the cigarette plan. Yes. So if you've got anything to say about the cigarette plan, that that was just a a platform into bird intelligence. Yeah. I think broadly, my question is, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) So there was actually a famous TED talk. In researching this, I have been... had my eyes open to... So anyway, let me explain. So the TED talk that I watched when I was... I don't know, this is maybe like 10 years ago or whatever, was that this person had built one of these vending machines in like a field near where they were and had trained the crows to put coins into it mm-hmm. and the way they'd done it is that they put like coin uh, they had this vending machine they put food on top of it and the crows got used to coming and eating the food and then after like a few weeks they replaced the food with coins and the crows would land they're now habituated to coming to this thing to look for food they land on it they're like Where's the food gone? But there's now a load of coins. So they're wandering around and they're knocking the coins with their beak and accidentally some of the coins fall into the slot. A bit of food rolls out. The crow goes, hang on, Mm. I know what to do. starts dropping the coins in the slot. The food comes out. Eventually you start spreading the coins out into the field further and further away. But the crows have now learned that the coin equals food. They find the coins. They take them back to the vending machine. They put them in the thing. And this TED Talk, Basically finishes with this guy being like, I then stopped putting out coins for the crows, and the, co- the crows would fly off into the towns, find coins lying on the floor, recognize that they had a food value, would fly back to the vending machine, whatever. This was a story that I used to say when we were on our expeditions, mm. and I was talking to kids, and I was trying to you know get them all birded up. Hype. Anyway, turns out it wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> because in researching this, I found that they had built the vending machine, And they had got pictures of crows on top of it. Turns out this was just the cheese it phase, where all they'd done is put cheese its on top of the vending machine, which I imagine is some kind of American crispy thing. The crows had come down, started eating them. They'd taken loads of pictures, which made it look like the vending machine was working. But as soon as the vending machine started whirring and making noises, the crows flew off. Crows are pretty wary when it comes to new things. Part of the fact they're so intelligent means that they're really cautious Mm. when it comes to new things like that. So that's essentially what this whole Sweden crows cleaning the cities idea is based on. Yeah, but it didn't work. So the idea is trying to take that concept and seeing if it can work. But the the coin thing didn't work. No, but the guy gave a TED talk (laughs) as if it did. Yeah. So he just scammed the world into crow. So basically, I've been telling this story Antiques. for like 10 years. Brilliant. Um, and then uh, on researching this, found this Reddit Ask Me Anything forum post yep. that was ran by some of the researchers on this lab, on this project, where oh, yeah. they explicitly say that the person who gave that TED Talk was expelled from the project. Wow. Because they'd basically... Just blagged it. Not They didn't use the word fabrication, but like grossly exaggerated yeah. the results of the study. Good. I mean, that... Mm, I'm wondering a lot about other TED Talks I've seen now. Well, yeah, you'd think that TED Talks were... I thought TED was on it in terms of due diligence or whatever. I guess they now do so many. Yeah. Some slip through the cracks. There's like TEDx Chesterfield. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think now any... This is now a a critique of TED. (laughs) Okay, the cigarette idea, so I like it. Yeah. It... Yeah, because we know there's, well, there's crows in, like, I think it's Japan, famously, where they, like, crack walnuts mm. at the traffic light. So crows, I'm not saying crows aren't smart. I'm saying, like, will this lead to our inevitable demise? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's something quite, first of all, there's something quite sad in hoodwinking an entire species to clean up after us. So right? there's a great quote that, uh, when I was reading this, that said, it's sad to think that it's easier to train crows to pick up our litter than it is humans not to drop it. Yeah, right, exactly. How does it... So they get a cheese it <laughs> So they, yeah. So basically, the theory goes that they would learn to associate cigarette butts with a food reward, and you're essentially teaching them the value of something. Like we were taught... The va- humans were taught the value of money. Like mm. money doesn't mean anything, yes. but you're aware that you yes. can exchange yes. it for goods and services. Yes. So you're teaching the crow... That that cigarette butt. Right. If you go to this place, you can exchange that for a nice, tasty peanut. Right. Whatever. Okay. Here's my thing. Right. Once the crows have picked up all the cigarette butts, <laughs> then they there's two options. Yeah. Option one, they riot. <laughs> yeah. Option two, they start smoking. <laughs> okay. Because the smart crows look at the where does the butt come from? Yeah. Cigarette. Next thing you know, you've got crows illicitly dealing <laughs> cigarettes to each other, you've introduced nicotine to an entire species. <laughs> They're just holding up corner shops. Exactly. Like, We've already got of, hooded crows. Yeah. Okay. Well, these are the these are the hooded crows. Right. I mean, come these off These are here. the hooded crows in Sweden. So as well as, first of all, enslaving an entire species to pick up after our... Yeah. We're then getting them addicted to nicotine. <laughs> but it's this idea of using like a wild animal yes, to do a service for us we- uh, and exploiting its intelligence in some way. I like it, but I also don't like it. Yeah. That's I, my position, yeah. I think. But interesting that you um, mentioned about the crows dropping nuts mm-hmm. to crack them over on mm-hmm. um, uh, traffic lights. Mm-hmm. Oh, That's something that i would got here. Uh, just examples of avian, uh, of COVID intelligence being used in city urban areas in Japan and America. The crows, like you say, there's really hard nuts that they can't get into. And they have basically learned that they can sit on top of the traffic lights. All the cars are passing beneath them. When the traffic lights go red, all the cars stop. They can fly down or they drop the nut so it lands on the road. And they wait for the cars to drive over, crack the nut, and then lights go red again. And they can fly down and eat their nut in safety. So there's definitely things there that people are trying to work with when it comes to this whole Swedish experiment. But using that as a platform to explore avian intelligence a little bit more... We'll start with probably the most... This is one of the most intelligent birds. This is still with staying with the corvids. This is the New Caledonian crow, mm-hmm. which is the star pupil when it comes to the crow family. Um, oh. And this this is the bird that will lead the avian revolution. Nerd. When, it, <laughs> when the time comes for the birds to take over the world, it will be led by a New Caledonian crow, or at least strategized okay. by the New Caledonian crows. So they're found on the remote island of New Caledonia. What?! <laughs> And it's good that they are only on this very remote island, to be honest. Part of the reason we think they've developed this exceptional intelligence is because on New Caledonia, there's a lot of niches that they can exploit because there aren't things like woodpeckers. Mm. There aren't other species that might exploit those niches. So the New Caledonian crows have come up with ingenious ways of harvesting food that isn't being exploited. In the wild, these new Caledonian crows have been observed regularly using tools. So they'll find small twigs and stick them into holes and pull out larvae, like chimpanzees and things do. But what they'll also do is not just find a stick that fits the job, but they'll also manufacture tools. The actual manufacturing of a tool has generally been something that we've thought of as only like primates and Mm -hmm. humans and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's not only that they are... Picking up a stick that they think this will stick in a hole, it's that they can change, they can snip bits off, they can bend bits, they can create different tools for different jobs. They're manufacturing tools. And essentially, it's likened to, when you read about it, carving. They're like taking bits of sticks, mm. bits of like thorny leaves, and they are snipping different bits to try and to get the tool that is going to help them get the grub out of the um, out of the, the wood. It's also the only non-primate species, the New Caledonian crow, for which there is evidence of cumulative cultural evolution in tool manufacture. So that is, the crows appear to have invented new tools by modifying existing one, and then they pass these on to other ones within the cultural group. So you have, like, cultures of crows that use specific tools. So it's like thinking... Like back in the day when you would have had humans in their tribes and someone comes up with a specific thing and then it slowly spreads around. That's what's going on with the crows in New Caledonia. Someone comes up with a good idea, modifying an existing tool. The other crows go, hey, that's a cool idea. And then eventually it spreads around the island. So it's not just in their natural environment in the island of Caledonia that the crows have been able to demonstrate this intelligence. It's not just by watching other crows that they're able to show how smart they are because in 2002 in a study by University of Oxford they observed a couple of New Caledonian crows called Betty and Abel who were in an aviary, so in a confined environment and Betty and Abel had to choose between a hooked and a straight wire to retrieve some of their favourite food which was pig hearts. One wire was straight, one wire was hooked and when Abel flew off with the hooked wire which was the better one to use because you could just put it in, and the hearts, the pig heart chunks were in this like little bucket in a vertical tube with the bucket handle sticking up. So you had to get the hook down, hook it under the handle, and then you could lift the bucket out of the vertical tube. Hang on, these are still the crows. These are still the crows. So the. So we're teaching crows, we're employing crows to pick up our litter, and at the same time, we know that their favourite food (laughs) is hearts. (laughs) Actually, when you put the two together like that. I thought these things were eating like corn. they're, They're eating pig hearts, and we're about to embark on enslaving them to pick up after us. And they, we know they're intelligent enough to make tools. Yeah. They can crack open things, and they yeah. eat hearts. <laughs> yeah. Like, th- what, the, what is going on in Sweden? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I feel like, yeah, this is an important public service announcement. This has suddenly taken a very ter- a, a real turn. Well, so, Abel flew off with this hooked bit of wire so that he could easily lift out the the pig heart in the bucket, which left Betty with the straight wire... Which wasn't going to work.. Yep. So what Betty did was stick the end of the straight wire under an object and bend it into a hook. Now this was the first time that either of these birds had been presented with a wire. It's not a natural mm. thing, so it's the first time they'd ever seen this, and Betty knew that it needed to be bent into a hook. So man Betty's on it. Betty's on it. Yeah. So scaling up from that, New Caledonian crows are capable of what they call meta-tool. Use <laughs> scaling Wait. up, were go. scaling up from that, they now drive JCBs <laughs> and exhume corpses. <laughs> like. They're now breaking into morgues, yeah, <laughs> picking with, locks with, at hospitals <laughs> with scalpels. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's now a some kind of crow mafia organ trade. <laughs> so, <laughs> meta tool use is. Essentially, using a tool to get another tool. Yeah. So, even though it's pretty impressive, you can easily see how a crow can see a bit of food that it wants and then needs to work out to get that food, I need to employ a tool. Mm. But it takes another level of intelligence, imagination, if you will, for the crow to go, which I shall, to get that tool, to get that food, I need to make another tool. So they're putting themselves into a situation that they're not immediately faced with. God. One study involved putting food in a box out of the crow's reach and the crows were given a stick that was too short to reach the food. However, this short stick was long enough to retrieve a longer stick from another box, which could then be used to retrieve the food. So the crows basically go, I've, got, I've been given this stick here. It's not going to reach the food. But then they see a longer stick and they go, hang on. My stick will reach that stick. They get that stick out, and then they can get the food. And then what people have done, they've hidden like the longer stick in another puzzle, and then there's another puzzle and another puzzle. And essentially, crows have been able to work out eight or nine step puzzles. To get to the final tool, you have to work through a set of puzzles. How many crows ever entered the crystal maze? <laughs> <laughs> crows will be putting us through the crystal maze. What, like, like, this is literally a game show. Yeah. For crows. Yeah. You set out all these puzzles and you go, There's your end goal, your nice bucket of pig hearts. Here's your opening stick. Terrifying, but and then you like work your way through it. And then they can observe all the other things. They know that to get to open that puzzle, they need to get into this puzzle, and then eventually it'll lead them to their favorite food. Honestly, if you introduce me to a human and you said this is Jerry, he uses sticks to eat pig hearts, <laughs> I would never speak to Jerry a day in my life. <laughs> I would run so far away from... <laughs> I'd move to New Caledonia to get away from Jerry. How big are they? Uh, Isn't a the pig uh, heart like... No, I mean, it's bits of pig. It's sliced pig oh, heart, which they've sliced with their own knives, I'm Eight sure. Eight-foot condor crow. <laughs> yeah. No, it's bits of sliced, bits of sliced pig heart right, is, okay. their, is their favourite food, which, yeah, they've probably got out a nice steak knife, sharpened it, and then cut it into nice little <laughs> slivers. But that's the crow. So the New Caledonia crows are up there with the most intelligent of all birds when it comes to their tool use, but they're not the only species to use tools, and as we're observing more and more on opening our minds to recognising animal intelligence, there are other bird species that use tools too. So things like Egyptian vultures, their favourite food is ostrich eggs. Very difficult to get inside an ostrich egg, because they're pretty hard, so Egyptian vultures will just pick up a stone in their beak and just crack it open like that. That's a nice little simple example of avian tool use. But wait, there the they can't just peck it with the beak. Like no, the no, stone no, no, is no. stronger than the beak. Yes. Yeah, so the stone no. is the stone is stronger than the beak, and the eggshell is stronger than the beak too. No, so, I get. Yeah, I did. Yeah, okay. I thought beaks were strong. I guess. Yeah, the Egyptian vulture is quite a small species, okay. and it specialises in basically eating oh, eggs. All right, cool. Um, so they take a stone and crack it open. Um, puffins, not that long ago, mm. were filmed using sticks to scratch hard to reach spots which is quite cute. That is such a puffin. It, like, like, picks up this little stick and then, like, scratches a bit of its chest with it. And it was the first tool use, I believe, in a seabird ever recorded. But also, that's, like, the first tool use for grooming. Yeah. Like, even apes don't... They're not making combs. You know what I mean? Like, Like... Yeah, I don't know whether there is. They must... And they must... I don't know. They but use all like the- loofers to like scratch their backs. <laughs> <Yeah>. Massage chairs. <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah, I can't think of anything else. It's always to get food, right? It's Generally. literally always to get... Is like yeah, yeah. stick to get the termite at the mound, yeah. stone to crack the egg, whatever... Series of culinary devices to get to a pig heart, <laughs> yeah. and the puffins are just like mm, cheeky scratch, cheeky scratch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like you say, it's very puffin, very on brand. Yeah, you've also got woodpecker finches on the island of Galapagos that yeah. use sticks in the same way to like impale grubs. Yep. But in captivity, a young Espanola cactus finch learned to imitate this behavior by watching a woodpecker finch in an adjacent cage. So that's cool, it just was able to watch it do it and then learn that it could do the same thing too, which for something like a finch. I had no idea that they were capable of that sort of stuff. Well, a finch's brain has got to be, like, literally a pea. Yeah. I'm not being, you know, rude to finches. (laughs) Any finches, let's say. Any (laughs) Espanol and uh, cactus finches. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Another cool one, which you may have seen, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's a a video that sort of does the round on Nature YouTube, (laughs) um, which is the heron fishing with the bread. Have you seen this? Yes. Yes. So it's a striated heron, and it's learnt that it can... Get this piece of bread, put it in the water and then it just waits and the bread is sort of floating around and if the bread goes too far away, the heron will pick it and bring it back so that it's in perfect striking distance and it's essentially using that bread as bait. When the fish come up, it stabs the fish and it keeps the bits of bread um, so that it can Carry on hunting. That heron's going to feel so embarrassed when a New Caledonian crow rocks up with a full set of fishing gear and tackle, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and tiny little crow waders just walking out there fly fishing. Just fly fishing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then also, leveling up from that, have you seen the video of the orcas heron fishing? Now it is in captivity, mm-hmm. so we should say orcas in captivity. Not great, but it's a really cool bit of behaviour where the orcas in it, it'll be in somewhere like SeaWorld it might actually be SeaWorld have been fed fish mm. and the orca keeps the fish in its mouth mm. and then it swims over to the side of its tank and spits the fish mm. out onto the um, onto the side of the pool mm. uh, and these big egrets and things which all gather around the orca when they're being fed their fish to see yeah. if they can grab any and and it spits the fish out and it's waiting there and then sometimes the fish gets washed back in by the waves that are coming out of the pool and it grabs the fish and it spits it back out again. And then this great white egret, which are pretty big birds, like a metre sort of tall, metre and a half tall, comes down and then the orca just grabs it and drags it into the pool uh, and eats it. So from the heron catching the fish, you've then got the orca catching the heron using a similar tactic. That's cool. Do you think, I mean, thing about walkers in the sea world is obviously traumatic and sad and everything and mm. it really is. But do you think they miss... Chewing. Because, uh, like, well, it depends they're on... They're huge, yeah. and they only get fed little fish. Like, well, they never get to take, like, a bite. You know what I mean? Like, if I only ever got fed grains of rice, yeah. I, you know, you want to take a bite out of <laughs> yeah. But there are... Orca are, are quite specialised in their diets, and you do get the orca in... I think it's northern Scandinavia area, which are herring specialists. Right. And they only right. eat herring, so they'll never take a bite out of a seal or a whale. Uh, and then you'll get other orca that never eat fish mm. um, that will be seal hunters big or chewers. things like that. Yeah, big chewers, yeah, as they're known in the orca industry. Where they all get together. Chewy orcas and, it's and... like, oh, it's the big chewers. The big chewers, here the they big come. Big chewers from downtown. Yeah. <laughs> big boys, big old gulp. <laughs> Don't choke on a herring. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wanted to finish by talking about an individual bird that has given us... Possibly the greatest insight into avian intelligence and what they're capable of. I thought you were going to say the greatest gift, and you were going to let me know that a bird invented like <laughs> Mac or <Penicillin>. something. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> it was actually <laughs> whatever is. What was his name who invented penicillin? Oh, I forgot his name. George something, wasn't it? I don't know. It was actually his canary. Yeah, <laughs> his new. Ca- his, what was it? The ayahuascan cactus <laughs> finch or something? Yeah, was it the Espanyolan? <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're going to go over to North America. And we're going to meet animal psychologist Irene Pepperberg. Now, she's not the, the bird that we're going to be looking at. Um, it's not Irene that we're interested in. Yeah, the, ad, the animal psychologist <laughs> is Irene a Pepperberg. wood <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Pepperberg, <laughs> yeah. stop eating that corn and focus on your presentation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Irene Pepperberg is a human animal psychologist. Um, but it's not her that we're interested in as such, but the grey parrot that she had from 1976 to 2007, Alex. Hmm. Alex stands for Avian Learning Experiment and was the name of the said parrot. Oh, come off. (laughs) And was uh, was bought from a pet shop by Irene when he was one year old. So just a standard pet shop, she found Alex the parrot, bought him in 1976. Why couldn't you just call him Alex? Yeah. Why did <laughs> Avian Learning experiment? Yeah, like somebody's like a cyborg. Irene, like get off it. What does Irene stand for? I I'm like- something lame. Okay, so Irene <laughs> has bought Alex and she then conducted a 30-year experiment essentially across his entire life that drastically changed our understanding of what birds uh, intelligence was capable of and their perception abilities. So Alex had a vocabulary of over 100 words, which is not bad. But he appeared to have an understanding of what he was able to say. He wasn't just mimicking words. He was able to use them to talk to the researchers. So, for example, when he was shown an object and asked about its shape or colour or material, he could label it correctly. So you could show him a, a block and you could say, what colour is this, Alex? And he'd go red. Hmm. Or you could say, what shape's this, Alex? And he'd go square. That's cool. Yeah. Did you say over a hundred? Did I get that? Yeah, over a hundred words. Wow. But he oh, could use. So he can then record like over a hundred things. It wasn't just he knew a hundred words. Well, that's some thing. of which were red square whatever, and the yeah. others were like hello. Yeah. It was the hundred words are. No, so his entire vocabulary is a hundred words. Right. Which among parrots, some parrots have been trained to say wo- like loads more words. Yeah, that's what I'm... the thing about Alex is. A lot of those words, he sort of understood them. He could put, he knew what a table was. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. The the shapes that he'd been yeah. okay. taught, he remembered and he could use them in more abstract ways, as we'll talk about in a minute. Okay. So he could describe a key, no matter what its size or colour. Um, and he could tell you the colour or the material that it was made out of. So, like I said, you, wow. sh- you show him an object and you go, well, what's this made out of? And he'd say it. You'd say, what colour is this? What object is this? And as long as they ones he'd been exposed to and told at some stage what they were, he could tell you what they were. Man, we should get Alex on the Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> <laughs> 18th century marble. Tuscan, I believe. <laughs> Look at the insignia on the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> Hallmark. <laughs> is it? China, yes. Quite. <laughs> so there's this really cool bit where Alex is put in front of a mirror and sees himself mm. and he asks the question, what colour? And he's asking that question about himself. So they tell him grey because yes. not, he'd not been taught grey. He'd been taught like red, blue, you know, very obvious primary colours. But he looked at himself and realised it was a different colour and then asks the question of the people with him, essentially, what colour am I? Come on, that is, lit, that is a conversation with a parrot. Yeah. That is a straight up yeah. A-B-A, like... Yeah. So they told him grey, and after six times of telling him, he remembered it, and that was it. He, he was able to identify that he was grey. Come off it. Which made him the first and only non-human animal to have ever asked a question, let alone, like, an existential one, like, what colour am I? Jesus. So apes have been trained to use sign language before. We've been able to communicate with apes that have learned sign language, but they've never like asked an independent question well, of th- their own thought. I thought that, thank Coco the gorilla, didn't she ask for a pet? I mean, it's not existential. Because I guess any animal which could, could go like food, like a dog putting ah. its paw on you, is essentially so ask... You're saying, I want something. Yeah. Which is different which to... Which is different to a literal abstract understanding of the universe in applying concepts it knew to a yeah. new scenario. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Okay, that's so a that's... a way of explaining it. Yeah. So he had... Comprehension of personal pronouns in that he would use I and you correctly, depending on who he was talking to. <laughs> he, she, they. Yeah. <laughs> he was, he, it's a shame he died in 2002, because yeah. he, would, he, he wouldn't have made the mistakes he that lots have, people uh, do. Yeah, up those word count. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, when he was tired of being tested, he would just say, want to go back, meaning he wants to go back to his cage. So when he got bored, Aww. he'd just say he wanted to go back. This is really cute. If the researcher displayed irritation during their, if the researcher was getting annoyed by the research that they were doing with Alex Alex would try to diffuse the situation by saying I'm sorry. Oh. So he was able to see if the researcher who he was working with was getting annoyed and he would apologize. Oh no. Oh, Alex. But then on the flip side he would also say things like I want a banana but if he was offered a nut instead, he would stand staring in silence, ask for the banana again, or take the nut and throw it at the researcher. Alex, (laughs) yes. Before requesting it again. Know your worth. (laughs) (laughs) The most intelligent bird that ever lived is going to know that if he wants a banana, (laughs) you're going to damn sure give me a banana. (laughs) Yeah, right? I am the only (laughs) animal to ever ask a question... I want a banana. (laughs) So he could also count as well. So when presented with a tray of different coloured blocks, you could say how many blue, and he would go three. Jesus. Or you could say the opposite of that. So you could say what colour three, and that would be saying how many of those blocks are are, yeah sure or whatever, and you would say blue. So so you could have like a tray of like, let's say you've got seven blocks, three of them are blue, four of them are red, and you could say, what colour three? And he would count, well, there's three blue ones, so he'd go blue, because that's three blue blocks. That is, oh my god. But then... Oh, come off here. He... (laughs) Every turn. (laughs) Every turn, I'm like... Yeah, let's go. But then sometimes he'd like get bored of the researchers and just have a bit of fun. I'll tell you what, that finch with a stick is looking (laughs) pretty stupid round about now. So he was once given seven different coloured blocks, two red, three blue and four green. And they asked him what colour three, expecting him to say blue because Mm -hmm. there were three blue blocks. But Alex, who had been asked this question before and knew how to do it, just kept saying five over and over again, like a toddler who's like, just being difficult, would. And he just kept saying five, 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 and they knew knew he was just playing them along. So this kept happening until Irene Pepperberg said, fine, what colour five? And there were no five blocks. Uh, So five blocks weren't any colour. And he said, none. Now this... It's pretty major because, one, it proves that he's... Taking the piss. That he's bored and he's p- yeah. pissing around. But it's also potentially the first proof of an animal ever having the concept of nothing. Zero. yeah. Because you're saying animals are aware of the existence of things. Yeah, but to conceptualise the absence and the nothingness. Exactly. Yeah. So when you're saying of which colour are five of those blocks Yeah. when there aren't any that are there aren't any colored blocks that number 5 he's he's well none of them so he's able to count all the colors all the blocks and say well none of them match the question that you're asking me so he is potentially yeah the first animal that has ever been able to demonstrate that they have a concept of nothing do we think so first of all my question did she train him differently to how other people teach parrot's words Mm -hmm. do we know that well i think what what happened here was she was an animal psychologist that set out from an early age to like properly explore this was done like as a day job yeah so this this was happening like nine till five every day it was irene and a team of researchers so i think the amount of effort that was put into this parrot (laughs) is like way beyond what standard people are doing when they train parrots to say hello who's a pretty boy then or fuck off or whatever they're teaching parrots yeah but like i'm trying to wrap my head around in a sense off the back of that you've then got an almost like nature versus nurture debate right because he got taught so intensely yes did that result in his increased intelligence yes or the other bit because if they'd had like five parrots they were doing it with and he was the only one then you're like he's a special parrot yeah If it's just a huge amount of effort going into essentially a random parrot, which he was as far as we knew before all of this, then any parrot could have the capacity to do this, right? So that's one thing. Yeah. Or the other thing is, are there, in the way that we've got like Stephen Hawkins, (laughs) are there genius animals? Yeah. I think I think Could he, he just have be. landed like is there a sheep out there <laughs> just <laughs> contemplating what it means to be you know yeah before it's unceremoniously turned into a shepherd's pie exactly like yeah there's a haddock somewhere in the north atlantic just questioning you know yeah. <laughs> i mean yeah you absolutely will like genetic variation is the foundation of evolution yeah. so just in the way that Humans, you get more intelligent. Humans, you, that will that will happen in the animal kingdom. Has um, to happen, right? Yeah, has to happen. Um, but then the smart, in the same way that we're like, whatever, you know, the cure for cancer could be in whoever, but, but just isn't being educated to like unlock yeah. it or whatever, right? Then like the smartest parrot yeah. could just be flying around yeah. the Congo, yeah, yeah, right now, yeah, yeah, and that parrot. If Alex, if all of that work went into Alex, and he ended up understanding zero, there could be a a macaw in Peru, which if we found it and put some effort in, could start doing quadratic equations. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's a chinchilla that could help us with space travel. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't the aliens that built the pyramids. Yeah. It was a sand grouse. Yeah. (laughs) It was one ridiculously smart camel was just pointed to its back and was like, do you see that? I want that big over there with stone. Get to it. Drew it in the sand. Exactly. (laughs) This on my back, massive over there. Stonehenge is a badger. trying to plot Neptune. (laughs) 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 We know it's an astrological (laughs) calendar. We just never truly understood how smart hedgehogs were. (laughs) The great stoat in the sky was what they were trying (laughs) to follow. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think what what this study shows is it's brought home the intelligence of it to us because it's things that we can relate to. It's talking about colours, it's talking about shapes, it's talking about numbers. But I think within their natural environment, which is hard harder to observe. It's showing just what their capacity for intelligence and problem solving and things like that. What It becomes impressive to us because we almost turn it into a language that we can understand, mm. which is how we monitor child development mm. or things like that. But it's an insight into the brain capacity of parrots and with the case of the crows, crows too. But I just wanted to finish with Alex... Who sadly died at the age of thirty-one, which came as a surprise because the average lifespan for a grey mm. parrot in captivity was forty-five years. His last words were Oh, is it don't is it something like <laughs> bye-bye or no more banana or something like that? It wasn't, but there is like a bit of an urban myth that he said something. I can't remember what yeah, it was. But I'm just going outside, I may be sometime <laughs> yeah. kind of Or oh, it may have even been this. He said to Irene as she left the office. Um, you be good. I love you. See you tomorrow. And they were the last words he said, but he did say them every single night. So that that's what he said every time that Irene left. Oh my god! Like where where was she in America? Yeah, she moved. She was in Arizona for a bit, and then she was at Harvard for a bit. So Is she he, took Alex around. But where where she must he? Must, she can't just chucked him you know what i, I mean? mean alex must be stuffed somewhere well stuffed be. or buried or like right he's the smartest parrot yeah. to ever live and the thing is is that she irene is con- and he said he loved her bye bye <laughs> you be good i mean this is oh my god we need an alex biopic <laughs> danny deviso playing alex yeah. <laughs> but irene was convinced that he hadn't reached his full potential and yeah. that with another like 11 years who knows what alex's cognition might have eventually revealed But as far as we know, in terms of at least how we measure intelligence, Alex is what we would class as maybe the smartest bird to ever live. And that's the story of Alex the Parrot and our little insight into avian intelligence. So a goose salute (laughs) to Alex the Parrot. A goose salute to Alex the Parrot. It's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, today's animal has been submitted by Alex on Instagram and is the West Indian manatee or sea cow. This is an aquatic animal and basically looks like someone overinflated a seal, like a -a pinniped blimp. (laughs) They're found in shallow coastal waters around the Caribbean Sea, coast of southern USA, northern South America and and central america females are generally larger than males but the average manatee is around three meters long and weighs anywhere between 200 to 600 kilograms the largest one ever recorded measured 4.6 meters that's 15 feet and weighed in at 1.6 tons so they're huge but weapons not many their most notable physical feature is that they have a prehensile snout for grabbing vegetation and bringing to their mouths and incredibly dense solid bones that act as ballast and help to hold the manatee underwater counteracting the buoyancy they get from their body size and shape so i think one of the key things here is to consider the squidge factor but although they look fat for a marine mammal they don't actually have a lot of blubber and they're really sensitive to the water going cold, they live in tropical areas and can really suffer if the temperature drops below twenty degrees Celsius. So, Roddy Shaw, how many West Indian manatees are too many West Indian manatees? It's tough because these are these are nature's snorlax. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like they're not exactly threatening. They're not threatening at all. No, not even like maybe the least threatening out there of all the things, and yet. So dense (laughs) It's like The most non-threatening thing that weighs 1.6 tons Yeah, you could think up. Yeah, what else like four meters long like that is huge Yeah, the largest one 4.6 meters. Oh a point six and weighing in at 1.6 tons. Yeah, they're obviously aquatic Yeah, and do you know how fish control their buoyancy? Oh, with a swim bladder? With a swim bladder, which is a, a pouch of gas. They fill up and let down and move them up and down the water column. Do you know how manatees do it? Is it something to do with their lungs? I think I saw this when I was looking into it. Nope. Nope. Okay. Nope. Do you want to go again? Uh, no, because that's all I had. They use farts. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> they have special gas storage pouches in their intestines. And tremendous anal control. That <laughs> <laughs> they literally rise and sink in the water column. All they do is eat veg yeah. all day. That's <laughs> bubbling up, right? And they bob up and down in the water. It's literally... I've got an article in front of me, and everything it's... And this is from swimmingwiththemanatees.com, <laughs> right? So they That gonna... sounds like the last thing I want to do right <laughs> now. <laughs> but... <laughs> Impressive control over the amount of gas they can make, contain, and release. Okay, so I've got a 4.6 meter, 1.6 ton block of muscle, yeah, and denser than normal bone, yeah, that also has outstanding anus control. <laughs> You've not faced a foe like it. <laughs> Few <If you> have. <laughs> And live to tell the tale. What, what would go after them? Shark? Sh- well, boats. Well, yeah, mainly. Okay. Yeah, there, there's really not much that would hunt manatees, because they generally don't go out far enough. No, they're kind of in mangrove, Coastally mangrovey, estuary yeah. sort of areas. I can't think of pretty much any predators that would be having a go at them. Um, In fact, I don't even know if I remember reading that they they don't have any natural predators and the only thing they're suffering from is largely boat strikes, loss of habitat and weather becoming more unpredictable because they are so dependent on the water staying warm. Do you remember when it snowed in Texas not that long ago? Oh, yeah. And they had to, all the sea turtles like froze on the beach. They had to carry them into the school. So manatees as i said really suffer if the water temperature drops below 20 degrees celsius because although they look fat and well insulated they're not they don't have blubber to keep themselves warm because they live in tropical areas right so they they suffer if the temperature fluctuates too much and with our unpredict unpredictable weather patterns now it's not great for the manatee but for the fight maybe something you want to consider <laughs> but like oh because normally there's there's an element of something gets the the animal riled up and it's like, all right, here we go, ding, ding, ding. This is just like bludgeoning a marshmallow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's no aggression whatsoever on their part. They're farting in the water... Worried they're going to freeze to death, or a boat's going to go over them. I mean, I mean, there's no way, but like they can't even get out the on the like they're 1.6 tons, but I can't. <laughs> can they? Cr- I mean, I guess they can. They can get- so there, I I ha- did see a picture while I was looking at this of when it gets nice and warm, and they like the warm, is that they'll haul themselves out a little bit onto sandbars in the mangroves, and no they way. can like bask a little bit. Yeah, basically just maybe their first quarter or first third out the water. But yeah, I saw a picture of a manatee basking, which I had no idea they could do but that also that almost sounds like you know if they put some effort in they'd evolve (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's like tiktarlik (laughs) the ancient fossil fish hauled itself out of the water and through its endeavors we are now here today (laughs) sipping coffee right like that fish committed to an idea and from it birthed millions of years of terrestrial evolution, <laughs> all of life's diversity. Yeah. What a time it goes back to that fish. Yeah. Versus these manatees which strike me as just like oh, that's enough. You know, <laughs> we'll, we'll not, let's not push it. Yeah. Let's just- well they already went back didn't they? Because they'll have come from. I can't make the fucking mind. They'll up, can have they? come from something that was terrestrial and then ended up going back into the water. And now they're now they're desperately trying to get back on uh, the yeah, land. come on, do- make up your mind. Oh, just <laughs> just a quarter. That'll. Oh, that's that's, that, that's enough fun. for today. There we go. <laughs> yeah. But you know, equally, any water deep enough for a manatee, like that's like nipple high on me, like chest, chest, like it's. Like then they're not swimming in knee deep water, right? It's got to be deeper yeah. than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. and then that then means that actually any water that I'm in with them, if they were to knock me over off balance and get on top of me, mm-hmm. then I'm drowned. It's just squish, squish. It's just well, squish, but drown before yeah, yeah, squish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Like, but it's the only thing they can use to get you is their weight, is it? Literally, they just have to bump into me in the right. All they can do is, it's like they're just gonna fart near me. <laughs> Knock me out with the gas or something. <laughs> and then some maybe these are stealth killers with maybe chemical weapons. Maybe they're a lot worse than we give them credit for. Hmm. But but they're gonna have to breathe as well, aren't they?
1: Yeah. They're mammals, yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah, they're
0: air breathers. So. Obviously, we know this to be true. Yeah, I'm gonna go with one. Yeah, I think they are... Look... In a boat (laughs) all day long, right? But I'm not playing that game. No. This is one-on-one. This is man to manatee, (laughs) okay? The reason I'm not going to two is because... (laughs) Other than the fact that they're 4.6 metres long and (laughs) weigh 1.6 tonnes. Listen, Jack, let's, you know... We've established that they don't even have the effort to evolve, okay? A literal passive process (laughs) (laughs) they have no interest in taking part of, okay? They're so lazy they're rewinding the clock (laughs) on the history of life, okay? The only way I win is holding one under the water, is basically drowning one. Mm. And I can't hold two, man. I don't think you can hold one. Yeah, but, you know we can't be as lazy as them you know yeah. we have to put the effort in alright so I'm going okay. with one okay. and then it's literally me trying to drown a four metre <laughs> <laughs> brat verse <laughs> drifting through a swamp farting ominously every now and then putting its head on the shore you've fought some ferocious animals in this segment but this is the one that I would be least envious about <laughs> yeah. like th- this is the one that I'm like no you you, I don't want any part of this <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tourists on, <laughs> on those like hovercraft going around <laughs> the Everglades or whatever. As you're just struggling with a giant <laughs> farting melody. yeah, Yeah, one. We've had a question in from Margot. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, which is simply, apart from pigs, which animal would be the best at disposing of a dead body for you? now pigs are the famous one which people use people use like it's a common thing uh, that have been used in the past because they'll eat anything and they can get rid of pretty much most traces of a body but what other animal could we potentially use instead so i'm guessing we want this disposed of quickly because obviously, if you just left it out, yeah. flies, carrion beetles, yeah, it's gonna but is going to be evidence, right? So I'm guessing the question carrion here, beetles, but over the course of a year, yeah. But you know what I mean? It's like a body will dispose of will will disappear in the wild, but clearly we've done the crime and we need this gone toot sweet. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Well, you want to pick something? Obviously, one of the um, what are they called? Not disposal. The things like vultures. Carrion scavengers, scavengers, yeah, scavengers, yeah, hyena. So that was my answer. My answer was hyena, yeah. Hyenas would get rid of everything, they'd chew through the bone, yeah, there'd be nothing left if a hyena got hold of it. I also wondered though whether you could give it to a crocodile and it would drag it underwater, yeah, because they do sometimes. I've learned recently that they all cache food under rocks at the bottom You'd of stick them under rivers, drown trees and things, yeah, like, and just yeah and feed on them for a while. So Mm. I wonder whether giving it to a crocodile would be a good idea. And crocodile acid can digest bone, can't it? I'm pretty sure hyena can as well. Hyena can, definitely. Yeah, hyena definitely can. I'm pretty sure crocodile can go through horn and bone. Yeah. A big snake, but the problem with a big snake is it is exceptionally obvious (laughs) where the body is. (laughs) The police are going to turn up. And See then, the reticulated python? With a, with a, a corpse-shaped bulge in it. <laughs> and the jig's up. Yeah. Um, it's like, yeah, we're looking for Toby. He was shaped like a triangle. And then just there's a snake in the corner with a pyramid in the middle of it. Like, no, I haven't seen Toby at all. I don't know why my policeman was a Hollywood movie executive. <laughs> hello, 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 you've seen Toby? But um, Big Snake, they can digest through everything. Big, big Snake, but you need to hide it for about three months longer yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the need like once a and year you couldn't be a serial killer if your way of disposing was a big snake because you're only doing you know yeah low volume one every two years or yeah. something um orca go to sea world i mean i hate sea world but okay. go to sea world it in there don't buy a ticket just jump the <laughs> just lob the body over lob the, the fence. body over the fence. hope it lands in the orca enclosure and not the sea otters and yeah, just dress it up as a whatever they're called sea entertainers (laughs) you know the back call them sea wizards they're not sea wizards staff member staff member that's probably the the shorter route to what i was looking for telecom food yeah um no hyena vulture what are the vultures the caracaras the caracaras yeah because they take bones and fly them up and drop Drop them, them yeah and then the bones smash open and they eat the and you have bearded vultures Or lammergeiers, as they're known, which live in Alps and places like that, and they eat bone. They'll they they will drop it to get to the marrow inside, but they'll also just swallow bone, and their stomach can digest it. That is hardcore. They are hardcore. Because like, if you've got a, you know, don't they say like, don't give your dog or your cat chicken (laughs) because the bone splinters and they die. And meanwhile, there's a vulture in the Alps eating bones. Yeah, there's some insane videos of them swallowing bones and you're like it just makes you cringe watching it. But they will breed in the winter time. They're one of the only birds that breeds in the winter because that's when lots of things die and that's when there's lots of bones available. So they'll breed in like, they'll have their chicks when it's like snowing and stuff in the mountains because there's a lot of food because a lot of the mountain goats and things like that are also coming to the cold that is such a macabre existence yeah it's like mummy, daddy why (laughs) 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 when did you have me did you love each other (laughs) no there was a (laughs) whole lot of death (laughs) i actually saw one the year before last because one got so lost that it turned up in the peak district just outside of sheffield that's pretty lost and it was giant it was huge um and it stayed around in the peak district for like a month or two and i went to see it and it was incredible. It was eating the bones of sheep and uh, hares. So Larger. they eat the meaty bits as well? Yeah, they eat the meaty bits, but they're specialised at eating the bones. Jesus, that's so metal. Because they have to they have to make use of everything they come across because they're living in such a big, desolate landscape. But also, Lammergeier. Yeah. That's a cool word. It's really cool. Why isn't there a heavy metal band called <laughs> Lammergeier? That would be incredible. In German, it means something like lamb vulture. It was falsely believed to be a killer of lambs and therefore it was ruthlessly persecuted and now we're having to do reintroduction things and try and boost the population back up. So they are actually trying to get away from that name, which is a shame because it's really really cool and they prefer it to be called bearded vulture because it's got these feathers that hang down. But lammergeier is infinitely cooler. Well, lammergeier is so Yeah. Yeah. I'm a lammergeier. Yeah. That could dispose of the bones of a body. Yeah. I mean, I think I've I'm I'm sticking heavily with hyena. Mhm. Then in second place is a big croc. In third place, Tillicum food. Yeah. But I think that that is definitely going to raise suspicions. You know, if there's a... <laughs> Sneaking in to see one. Yeah, 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 yeah. because yeah, you couldn't feed it to the wild ones because they wouldn't eat it. No. Then, big snake, but playing the long game, and I really hope this person isn't a strongly identifiable outline. Yeah. <laughs> like... And then probably over to the vultures and the Lamagaya. Mm. And if the hyenas wanted to team up with the Lamagaya, I have no qualms there. Yeah. You know, if I can involve a Lamagaya, (laughs) then I'm having fun. Thank you for listening to today's episode, which may have included in no particular order gorillas fighting sharks, hedgehogs, which have learnt to skydive, or maybe that thing we found out about seals, which can juggle. (laughs) You have to peel back the curtain. As we record these outros, we've got no idea what you've listened to because we basically get together of a weekend and record all of it in one go, edit it, then mix and match the episodes. Um, So we've got no idea what you've listened to, but we hope you enjoyed it. It is a really nice sunny day outside at the time of recording and we have opted for the good of our fair listeners to lock ourselves in a small room, (laughs) gazing out at the sunshine and discuss whatever it may be. But thank you all very much for listening and for sharing. We're still seeing the podcast grow and we're really, really enjoying it. But I'm afraid it's time for us to be very awkwardly British (laughs) um, and announce that we have set up something that, if you feel so inclined, you can donate a little bit of money to us. Listen to the change in our voices <laughs> as we awkwardly navigate the world of donations. Yes, Jack and I do love meeting up to do this. We think that meeting up to do this adds something to the show and we really enjoy meeting up to record this for you. And mm. as part of all of that meeting up, I keep mentioning there are a lot of train fares involved. <laughs> yeah. So if you would like to help out, we would absolutely love it if you could go to www.buymeacoffee.com for Forward slash how many geese, all in one word. Um, we'll also put a link to that at the end of the description on the episode. Just chuck us anything you've got, but if you don't have anything, do not worry. We're not going to make this, you know, exclusive or anything like that. And it will just help, literally, support the costs of doing this in our spare time. That's the deal. Do you like it? Yes. Yeah. Can you help out? Great. If you can't, no worries. We're going to keep doing it. So. Thank you, everyone, very much for listening to whatever you may have just listened to. See you next time. Hooray. Bye.